Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me each week as we explore the minds of living composers. We talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Reginald Untazea. Reg is the music director and composer in residence at Shalom United Church of Christ. His compositions are regularly performed throughout the world and have been featured at regional and national ACDA and NAFME conventions. In 2013, Reg was named Composer of the Year by the Washington State Music Educators Association, and he's a founding member of Northwest Choral Publishing and has works published through Oxford University Press, Walton Music, MusicSpoke.com, as well as in the Justice Choir Songbook. Reginald Untuzea, welcome to Movable Doe. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to actually start with a point of bio that I didn't include earlier. You state online that you've had more of your compositions performed in a nuclear reactor than any other composer in history, living or dead. Living so, or dead. <laughs> so I know there's a story behind the statement, and I'm curious to hear it. Yeah, definitely. And um, in fact, two of the pieces that 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 I that I sent to you that we could talk about are come from our nuclear reactor um, concerts. So, so where I live is um, very near the um, Hanford Nuclear Reservation, which was one of the main sites, where maybe the main site of the Manhattan Project in the um, in, in World War Two. So there are all kinds of, I can actually see, I live kind of up on a hill and I can see a long ways away and I can see nuclear reactors. Um, the, the ones that I can see don't date from the 40s, they're a little newer, but, but, but at that time, um, this area was chosen because of, its, because of its remote nature, because of the water close by, and because of, of a variety of reasons um, for, for the site of, of a, a nuclear reactor. The first, the first big one was called the B reactor, which is not because it was, you would think A was first, but no, that's not how it works. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the, it, it was the first full-fledged plutonium reactor ever on the face of the planet. Yeah, um, there was a, there's another main reactor at, at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The, the one at Hanford was the one where they, where the materials for the, the Trinity test, the first, the first, you know, bomb test, um, was, was, was manufactured and the, and the materials for the, for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki were, were, were made here. We have actually commemorations every, every year and things like that. So this so, is in like South Central Washington state. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's just just north on the Columbia River. It's just north of where the Snake and the Yakima Rivers join the Columbia River. So it's 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 this big central basin. Um, so instead of that, it's a very old reactor. Again, it's, it doesn't look like people think it, it it does. It's not at all what people think of as nuclear reactors are, uh, and and it's an extremely important historical site. I you know it's it's the dawn of the nuclear age. I mean, I can see the dawn of the nuclear age from my house, and. So there was when these things get contaminated and old and, and and terrible they they the general plan has been to to cocoon them to put them hide everything block everything cover everything there was there was um a strong effort to maintain this this particular reactor as a in its in its more original um, uh, configuration as a historical site, so that that was a very long, a very difficult process, and but eventually what happened was it became part of the 
the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. Mm -hmm. And they started doing tours and things like that before it became part of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. The first time um, Justin Raffa, who's the artistic director of uh, Meet Columbia Master Singers, and I went out there on a tour, which was very early, one of the very first tours that they had out there. We walk into the main reactor room and it's like, we have to sing here. I mean, it's this big, it's this big concrete room. It's not huge, but there's, there's, um, well, there's pictures on my website of what it looks like. It is not what you think. It is not what you imagine. And the sound in there was amazing. Just for, for in fact, if you go out there and you look at um, um, Facebook, you'll see a place that I created called the Cathedral of the Nuclear Age, and that's what, that's what, that's how I think of the the B reactor is that it's it's a spectacular small cathedral like acoustic. And so we said, like, what do we do? How do we how do we do this? So over a period of so the first thing I um, wrote them a little proposal and say, yeah, we want to come sing here. And the and the and the DOA was, um, we're the Department of Energy. We're not in the business of doing concerts. Um, that's <laughs> that's not what we do. And so you know, you think about it. This is a place that they've been trying to keep secret and safe and hidden and away from espionage and bad guys. And they've been trying to keep this away from people for years and years and years and years and years. And that whole mindset of, of keep it safe, keep it secret. Um, And now it's like, Oh yeah, but, but come on in and and do stuff. That's a huge mind shift. The the first time I ever went out there, I was at, uh, I was in the parking lot and I was just kind of looking at the edges and a, and a, guy in fatigues and with a you know AK-47 looking looking um, machine says you get a step back a little bit and it said there's snakes over there and it's like yeah okay <laughs> so so anyway so after that first rejection outright rejections like no what are you people crazy um Justin blessings on his head um decided, okay, so what I need to do in order to make this work is to get to know some people. So he, over a period of several years, he got to know the right people. We did little events for them with the master singers here and there. And then eventually we were able to, um, we were able, we were able to start doing concerts inside the facility. The very first thing we did was we sang a national anthem and roll on Columbia for the for for a rollout of the of the um, of the National Historical Park. Um, you know, with 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 Senator Murray and um, uh, the, all the senators and 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 state representatives and U.S. representatives, everybody just kind of sitting around looking right in our face, and the sound was amazing. And it was and and so that generated enough buzz and positive feeling that we were then able to start doing concerts and so we we did um, four concerts i believe in the before times um program for these is always is always complicated i have had um pieces on three of those concerts one of them we did was a complete concert of a piece called annalise by i should know their um whitburn yeah james whitburn um it was a, a new a, a um a world war ii themed thing about uh, uh, uh anne frank um, but other ones, you know, so what you, you know, what science themes, um, what, what do you do? Uh, you know, what do you do? What do you sing at a nuclear reactor? Well, we will have a chance to talk about some of your pieces <laughs> yeah. that you wrote for a nuclear reactor yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the second half of our program today. But before you got to nuclear reactors, mm-hmm. I want to back up to when you were young. Okay. So how did you start musicking? Were you doing piano lessons or school ensembles? What did you start with? 
as a, I do not remember a time when my brother and sisters and parents and I did not do music together. That was always a thing that we did. My we would be my my brother and sister and I would be paraded in church and do and do all, we would sing duets and you know I played violin and I played played uh, piano and I you know did all those things. And I don't really remember when that started because I don't remember a time when it didn't exist. Uh huh. So that was always that was always a thing that that we did. Were you in ensembles in school as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know the the um, I didn't do choirs very much, which is which which is interesting. Um, but but I I did I did more. I was strings, played French horn, played you know whatever whatever I could pick up and whatever I could make go. And what I was sort of not very good at a lot of instruments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what sort of music were you listening to when you were growing up? Classic First rock. Album I ever had was the Marty Robbins Gunslinger album, which Gunslinger. is Gunslinger. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. I the cover, red cover with Marty Robbins with his gun and all this kind of stuff. So there, you know, there was a strong country music thing, country music and baroque music, and, and that's church. a good compos- combination there, right? And and hymns and church music. Um, so yeah, um, so that was the, that was kind of where where it started. I really fell in love with um, classical music as a teenager playing baroque music. That was especially. Hmm. Str- with strings when I was playing strings and we would play and we would play Vivaldi and Bach and Telemann and all that stuff I mean that was so much fun to play and there was an energy about it there was a, a there was just a, a connection that I felt to that music I also was very into um, um, progressive rock of the 70s and 80s and you know yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer and all that kind of stuff I first heard of Finisterra through a through a Emerson Lake and Palmer album go, wow that's really cool what is it wait a minute <laughs> That's great. So how did you eventually get into composition? Um, the first thing that I remember doing is an arrangement when I was in the seventh grade. I was supposed to play my violin for some sort of event, and I couldn't find – it was like a Christmas event, had to have been, because I did Silent Night. And I couldn't find anything that I liked, so I just wrote one. Um, and, I, and, I, and I remember <laughs> – I, I remember the room because it was like, wait a minute, I could just – I could just write one. Why couldn't I? Why, why, why wouldn't I? Other people do it. So I, I, I remember doing it. I remember what the carpet was like. I remember what that old piano was like and working out the little chords and all this kind of stuff. And so it was, you know, a very simple piano accompaniment. And I just played the melody on my violin. So that was the first thing. And then when I was a teenager, I did the usual teenager thing of playing my guitar and singing. And I would, you know, write little songs for, for things. And, and very frequently, it was the sort of thing where people would say, oh, I want you to do something for this event or that event or the other event. Um, you know, sing for church this morning. I'm like, I don't know what I want to sing. What do you want to sing? I don't know. Well, I'll just make something up. So that's, you know, that's kind of how it started. So when did you decide this is the career path I want to follow? I did not decide that. So <laughs> um, um, actually, I, I was bitten by the theater and opera bug. So uh-huh. it was uh, in college um, that happened. So all the way through college and graduate school, you know, um, choral music and composition was not my thing at all. It was it was performing. I um, I you know, got to do some fun things. I sang with the Texas Opera Theater back when there was such a thing as Texas Opera Theater. So that shows how old I am. The um, I, you know. At, uh, Opera Theater St. Louis, Kansas City Lyric. I was in the Midwest for graduate school. So there was a lot of things in the Midwest and the South. I was saying, you know, did symphony gigs hither and thither and that sort of thing. One of the things that I discovered in that process was that I loved being on stage all the time. I hated living in hotels all the time. <laughs> this, became, this became a thing. And, and um, 
And also, you know, I was never star material. I never had star voice material. I, you know, I, I was I, I was never that big voice that you really need to make to make a strong international career. I there were other things that I could do. I would do. I did cartwheels on stage and rode bicycle around the edge of the stage at Opera Theatre St. Louis and while singing a tricky little Britain song, stuff like that. I could do stuff like that. But yeah, it was I was I was never going to do the other thing. And I just I I got sick of it and. Um, moved um, here to the Tri-Cities where my wife um, took over her father's medical practice. Um, she's a family physician. Um, and I was kind of trying to figure out how to make a career from here. And then it was like, no, I'd rather have children. So I was an at-home dad for I have three kids and now I have four grandchildren. And, and, I, and so there was that path. And then um, a church job came available. It's like, would you like to conduct a church job? It's like a church choir. And it's like, okay, I don't know how to conduct really, but you know, I've done it before. So uh, why not? Um, and then again, I need a piece that will do this particular thing. I have a children's choir and an adult choir and I need to do a Christmas song. What do I do? And I, I, I did um, composition sorts of things in college some, I mean, I still did that. I was very into very complicated, atonal, bizarre, you know, what I, you know, that kind of thing, because that was the style and that's what, what right. was encouraged in the world. That was academic music. Um, and I still remember also sitting down to write this piece for my church choir going, oh, wait, there's nobody going to grade me on this. I don't have to redefine Western music as we know it with this little piece. Um, <laughs> just write what you like to hear, maybe. How about that as an idea? So I did. And worked out pretty good and the process was fun and they sounded good. And so I started writing things for them. Um, after a while, I, I, it, it started to take on more importance to me. Um, and I got to go to a couple of uh, composer type uh, um, events. There was a thing at um, Lehigh University. Steve Samets was running it. I think the first year I was there, who was it? Libby Larson. Li the first time I went there, well, Libby Larson was the master composer person. And I went there and it was it was transformative. Um, Libby Larson is a amazing and 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 talked about process a lot and got connected with other people who were in the same spot as I was. Um, um, and that's how I got connected with Oxford University Press was they were one of the sponsors at that time of that program. And um, the things that I wrote at the at the workshop, I, I remember my editor at the time said, well, none of those things will work for us. But what else do you have? So I said, well, and so I just happened to have of course, as you do, um, a bag full of, well, here's things I wrote for my children's choir, here's things I wrote for and that's what really got me started with with OUP was children's choir music. Uh-huh. Very and then cool. It kind of, and then it kind of branched out from there. Yeah. And I, I can verify what you said about Libby Larson. I interviewed her back on season two, and she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did want to ask about your opera performing. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your favorite role you ever did? And do you have a sort of a bucket list like if i could perform any role what would it be oh interesting i you know probably um i my favorite thing to uh, i love to sing i love bohem I, I sang bohem millions of different times i sang marcello sometimes i sang chenard sometimes those were those were those were fun fun roles i loved singing papageno that was a that was a fun thing we even actually started an opera company we had a very successful for about five or six years opera company in tri-cities that i was one of the founding members of i was the chorus master i didn't sing with them very much um, um, as far as bucket list, I don't know. I don't know if any old man rolls. <laughs> well, if you were still young, do you have one that you would? <laughs> um, I, Magic flute is one of those things that I could sing that, that I could sing, you know, 
five times a week and not and not get sick of. Uh, same thing with Bohem. I mean, that's I did sing that on tour. Um, Carmen, I got tired of on tour. Mm. Um, there, there are things that you get that, that you get tired of. I don't know. I just haven't thought of myself in that regard in, in in that way as a as a solo performer for really a long time. Yeah. I, um, I I do a lot of choral singing now. I get to sing a lot of early music things. Um, I are not a lot, not as much as I want. I want to sing a lot of early music things. I love early music stuff. Um, I love complicated um, modern music things. Those are so I right now I don't really have a bucket list for for as a soloist. My I, I want to just keep singing great stuff in in choruses. I sing Fantastic. different choruses. All right. So I want to uh, mention something you talked about on your website. You said that you've mm -hmm. always been drawn to composing pieces about the natural world and current yeah. events. Yeah. So what events have caught your attention in the past that you felt compelled to write about? Um, environmental issues, um, um, social issues. I mean, the, the, the atomic thing, one of the reasons is that particular thing, because the history of the nuclear age is something that's really fascinating to me and how, mm -hmm. how, how, how our relation, our ability to destroy life on the planet happened and what do we do about that how do we feel about that how do we move forward with that and how did the and especially learning about the manhattan project how it started out as a well we can't have we, we can't let nuke uh, let hitler get the nuclear bomb before we do or we're all toast that's a case you can make and then how did it shift to we now have made enough um materials to kill everybody on the planet oh you know three or four hundred times over um at what point do you really need that much stuff at what point does it become about money at what point does it become about bizarre ideas of power um eisenhower's um famous speech you know we were talking about the military nuclear uh, the, the military industrial complex one of the things he was talking about was the nuclear industry where it changed from um saving ourselves from Hitler to lots of people making billions of dollars. And it's, you know, where, how does that shift happen? So things yeah. having to do with the, that issue is very interesting to me. Um, environmental issues. Um, I, I remember obsessing one time about the, uh, the, the, there was a big giant oil spill in, and I can't remember the name of it in the, where oil was just gushing out of this extremely deep well in the, um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And mm -hmm. it was just gushing and pouring. And I, um, I, I, I wrote, I wrote some things about that. There are things about, um, there was an, there was an oil, uh, a coal mine disaster at about the same time. So I've written about that. Um, things having to do with environmental issues, uh, and, and, um, and the nuclear industry and, and our relationship with those sorts of things and our relationship to, to nature and, and what's reality and all these sorts of things really, really fascinate me. So if you think back to when you first started composing versus how you're composing now, would you say you compose pretty much in the same way or do you compose differently now than you did when you were starting out? Um, I still largely write for specific purposes. I don't tend to, I'm not Libby Larson who gets sits down at, you know, 837 every morning and writes this things for seven minutes and whatever that is. I'm not, I, I tend to be pretty um, project driven. Um, it's like, if a thing comes up, I write, I write for those things. I don't write every day, although things go through my head every day. Um, 
So those those processes are still similar. Um, what changes is skill set. I mean, I, I blessedly I was um, an instrumentalist as well as a singer when I was a kid, and so I and I love writing for orchestras and I love writing for for instrumental ensembles as well as as well as singers and the and the integration of those sorts of things. I'm a both bad enough and good enough piano player to be able to write piano parts that <laughs> that real piano players like to play. <laughs> Which, which I'm always grateful for, but I can't. But I I can almost play them myself, but not quite. Um. So a lot, and, and that actually is a thing. I oftentimes write for things that I wish I could do myself, but I'm not a soprano, despite how I appear on YouTube sometimes. Um. I am. Um, so there there are. <laughs> um. Yeah. So so a lot of things are the same. I just I just know I, I have had more experience, and so there's more there's more things that that happen. Writing for orchestras, I love writing for string quartets and string quartets and things like that with 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 voices, and that's just that that feels more second nature than it used to. Oh, so when you're not composing, what do you like to do with your time? What sort of hobbies do you have? Um, I, you know, the, the more time I get to spend with my grandkids, the, 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 the happier I am. I mean, I loved being an at-home dad. I was, I, I had, you know, about three kids, but they were spread out in age quite a bit. I had teenagers for 15 years at something or something. See, maybe just seemed like that. Um, no, it was great. I loved having teenagers. I, I so, so, you know, Taking care of kids is a is a huge is a huge fun thing for me. Um, I like to I like to go hiking. I like to I I am a big time I'm snow skier. I was a s snow ski instructor for like five six years, and and I still even after however many thousands of um, um, knee surgeries I've had, I still I still um, snow ski. I can't water ski like I used to because my because of my hand surgeries. I can't hold onto the rope really anymore. Mm -hmm. My new sport though is wing foiling. I have become obsessed with. The wing foiling and and um i so i'm i'm learning that right now because it's a thing i can actually i it's it's a doable thing with my physical condition and my age so it's great yeah, do you go out so, on the yeah. columbia river and do it um priest lake idaho north priest idaho lake. actually okay. a lot yeah my family has a place up there that we've had since the early 60s and so i'm very lucky to get to be up there um a fair amount and yeah anything that's out on the water that's i'm 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 good with it and you know hiking and backpacking and all that kind of stuff yeah whenever we're driving across oregon Along the interstate, we always see wing foilers out there on the Columbia yeah. River. <laughs> well, and it's and, that, and it's a new thing, you know. I mean, it's like I I did try the kiteboarding thing. I you know uh, sailboarding uh, never felt natural to me at all. It, it went against too many of the other habits that I had, physical habits that I had built up. Um, kiting it, it just was just too complicated, and the conditions had to be more specific. And the th wing sports, the whether it's just wing surfing or wing foiling, um, are there's just a, it's just a lot more um, opportunities to do it. So I'm real excited about it. Fantastic. All right. Well, I've got one more question before we take a break. Uh, I'm asking this to all my guests this season. Who is one other living composer that you think we should all go check out? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Who do I... Um living composer you're you're specifying living composer. I don't know. I'd have to think about that because uh, I it's one of the reasons I'm... I, I, quit doing my um, jobs as uh, running choruses and things like that is because in order to be successful at that job, you have to spend a lot of time um, um, programming. You have to spend a lot of time listening to other, listening to pieces, making choices that regard. And if I spend much time in that, my own compositional process gets, gets tangled up in that. And so I have, I, so I don't go out, don't tell anybody, 
but I don't go out and listen to a lot of other composers. I it, it gets confusing to me. Um, and I, and I fall into teacher mode sometimes. Too. Well, what you really ought to do is this, 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 this. So and it's like, yeah, no, no, just listen to it, enjoy it. And I so it's not there, there's there's nobody who's just jumping out at my uh, out at me. Part of the problem also in this is like if I mention one of my friends, all the rest of my friends are going to go, <laughs> why didn't you say me? And and one of the one of the <laughs> one of the things that I'm very fortunate is that I have I do have um, a lot of composer friends and I get connected up with them as best I can, and and I and so yeah, I don't want to slight one. It's, it's, I feel a little bit like it would say, "Which is who's your favorite child?" And I'll go, well, I love all my children. Who's your favorite grandchild? I love them all. They're awesome. I'm Polly. I'm a Polly composer lover. How about that? Polly composer lover. Yeah. That's a- a great political answer to avoid <laughs> offending your friends. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Reg's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Reginald Unterzeer. So we're going to start today with a little song of life for mixed voices and piano. This piece explores your love that we mentioned earlier of the natural world. Yeah. Uh, so the beginning of the piece begins with an expression of joy of nature. Where where does the piece go from there? It's about the cycles of nature. One of the things that you know, growing up on a farm, um, and I, you know, I um, um, worked on farms as a kid. I mean, I was always very connected to. You know, when do you plant the seeds? When do they grow? How do you then? Then you harvest them, and then there's the fallow time, and then the spring comes back. So this, this, these cycles of nature, are um, are very interesting to me. The, the we tend to get stuck in in the where we are right now is where we will be forever. Um, and and one of the reasons why I came this is a piece that I that I was um, originally um, commissioned by Chil- children's chorus in in Spokane Spokane Area Children's Chorus. And, and I wrote it for kids um, because it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a beautiful kid perspective. But I came back to it a couple of years after during the pandemic because during the pandemic, I mean, writing was like, no, I don't want to write. I just don't know. I'm not. It's just not happening. And this poem and this piece was very comforting to me because it was like it was about cycles and where we are now is not where we're going to be stuck forever. Um, and so, so, so this this piece has become very important to me after after it sat for several years. All right. Well, we are going to listen here to the Priest Lake Chamber Chorus performing a little song of life.
By the way, I have a little secret to tell you about the Priest Lake Chamber Chorus. You are looking at the Priest Lake Chamber Chorus right now. Oh, <laughs> it's all me. Um, that's so, so. Don't tell again. Don't tell anybody. Your secret's safe here. It, yeah, 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 All right. Our second piece today is the Steady Light. So this has been arranged for many different voices and available a cappella or accompanied. So where did the piece start? Was this a, a commissioned piece? Um. Sort of. Um, Steady Light started out actually as a piece for um, piano or organ or string quartet with choir. I brought it from my church choir. We needed a we needed a, a kind of benediction-y kind of kind of piece, and so I asked Sheila. I said, um, "Come up with I, I need some benediction words." So she wrote this really po this beautiful poem that I really really love. Uh, and again, it's a, it's about perspective. Um, it's about you know. Where am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? Who looks up to me? Who do I look up to? I mean, all that stuff is is in there. And again, and again it's references to the natural world. Um, and so I originally wrote it. I, Bob Chilcott said to me, "Don't get stuck in writing for any particular." Um, uh, only he said it in a British accent, which I will not try to admit. <laughs> right now. The um, move beyond piano and organ and all those things. So I, you know, string quartets, I mean, that that's second nature, nature to me. I love playing string quartets. So it's like, oh, so this has the, <laughs> the accompaniment, the accompanied version was first. And there's a string quartet version. There's a organ version. There's a piano version. There's a full string orchestra version. There's all these versions because that was an interesting um, exercise for me. Um, this is very, you know, much, a, it's a, it's a tune that you can set in a variety of ways. Um, and then, you know, who's, who's singing today? Okay. Do we have two people singing? There's a, you can do it solo, you can do a two-part thing, all those things. And then eventually, 
we needed a, um, a, in my in my thing of write things for what you need um, for a, a, a group that I've sung with for a long time called Mail Ensemble Northwest. We needed a um, piece for a particular purpose and a particular programming thing. And I was going, well, there's this piece that I had that's accompanied. Maybe I could try an unaccompanied version. So, and I, I I remember stopping along a road somewhere in the in the in the Oregon Cascades and said, oh wait, you guys, I have an idea. Hold on, hang on, wait. <laughs> And so, and by the time I got drove all the rest of the way home, I uh, I pretty much had it worked out in my head and, and wrote it out. And so then there's a, you know the upper voices version, lower voices version, essay or you know, and and mixed choir versions. And I don't do that very often. I I okay, that's a lot. That's a lie. <laughs> Pieces that are very much kind of like a song. I, like, I do like to do multiple versions of, and I do a lot of things that way. There's other pieces like what we will look at later that are, that no, I, I don't want different versions of this. I want, I, I want it to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so that's, so that was the, that was the, 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 the genesis of Steady Light. And we, we sang it at, at, at my church job for, you know, for benediction frequently for, for quite a long time. Fantastic. Well, I just happened to choose the TTVB version for us to listen to, here performed by Male Ensemble Northwest, singing The Steady Light. Let my foot fall on this All right, our next piece today, uh, American Soldiers. So this is from Nuclear Dreams, an oral history of the Hanford site. So we already talked earlier about your performance in the nuclear reactor. Yeah. So I'd yeah. like to know about this movement in particular. What What yeah. is it about, and how does it sort of fit into the whole? So this whole piece was the last thing that we actually did out, out there before the pandemic. Um, and, and it's the it's a constant, like, 
big work for chorus and soloists and and a, and a small orchestra, a lot of percussion players. Um, and it was a, a friend of mine who is a very interesting poet and mythologist and technical writer at Hanford and, and did, did a lot of work in, in historical work. Um, one day I, I, had a, I had a dream that I put on, on Facebook and she said, oh, you know, I wrote a paper that was all based on the dreams of nuclear workers, right? And I said, you did what? <laughs> so she sent it to me and, and, and in the course of a few months we had a, we had a libretto. Um, and then I, then I bugged Justin and said, Justin, 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 we have to do this. Justin, 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 we have to do it. So I was able to um, talk him into um, a, a concert-length piece. Now, this particular thing, the Atomic Soldiers um, uh, section, um, we were about, uh, Nancy and I were about two-thirds of the way through writing this piece. I was into the music part. The, the, we, we did small adjustments to the libretto as we went um, as in the compositional process. Um, and we both, we, our emails almost crossed to each other because we saw in the New York Times a uh, a, a documentary film uh, th that was that was interviews with the soldiers who were part of the nuclear tests of the late 40s, early 50s. And these were things where, I mean, it, it's shocking to us now that they would do this, but they did. Um, this was in the duck and cover years where, you know, it's like duck and cover. You'll be fine. It's fine. <laughs> they, um, and, and so what they would do is they, because they didn't know how this stuff worked. They didn't know what was going on. So they would, they would, um, Put a nuclear bomb out in the desert, get a bunch of soldiers, they'd blow this thing up, and then they'd go running in. And I am not making that up to see what would happen. So the, <laughs> this document, and then those soldiers were sworn to secrecy. They were, they were, you know, they were actually, if they had talked about it, they could have been executed. Um, mm -hmm. So, so this documentary that finally changed um, in like late nineties early 2000 I'm not I don't I forget the exact date but um th that changed and it became legal for them to talk it and there was not that many of them left by that time so the um, Morgan Kennedy the, the um, filmmaker made this documentary that was a collection of, of of their interviews about their experiences and that movie was just surreal and bizarre and so perfect i mean it, it fit into the project so perfect so we immediately wrote to the to to, to him and the new york times and said um can we write some music and and they really fast i mean matter of just a couple of days said sure go ahead so nancy um took excerpts from those interviews and, and made a single piece out of it so this this is all the words in this are 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 right directly out of interviews with the soldiers who went wow. running in after the nuclear explosions to see what would happen and what that experience was like for them. So there's a couple of things that aren't necessarily linear. It's like this didn't lead right to that, but I kind of stacked them all up in different ways. Um, and yeah, so this is this is like real life. This is what this is what happened, and it, it was it's I it, just jaw dropping to me that whole thing. Well, we actually get to hear this performance, which was performed uh, inside the B reactor. Yep. Uh, back so this in recording comes from inside. Yeah, this is this is a recording inside the reactor. Yeah. All right. So this is the Mid Columbia Master Singers with Justin Rafa as conductor.
Our last piece today, if you can read this. So this piece also focuses on the Hanford nuclear site, uh, this time from poet Kathleen Flanagan, who spent time as a civil, civil engineer at Hanford. Uh, I understand that this piece is for multiple choruses yeah. and is best experienced live. Yeah. So tell us about this piece and how you envision its performance. Yeah, so um, again, I'm always on the lookout for for subject matter, for 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 poetry, and for uh, uh, things like this. Kathleen was the Washington State Port Poet Laureate. Um, mm. I first got um, connected with her while she was in that in that role, and uh, I, I wrote a, a series of songs for a soprano and string quartet ba- w- taken from her book called Plume, which is actually focused on the Hanford area, and the plume refers to the the, the giant pool of massive toxicity that was sinking into the ground and moving towards the Columbia River. Uh-huh. And there's been multi-year, multi-billion dollar effort to, like, what do we do? And Kathleen was a, was a hydrologist, so the, the, she, besides being a, a poet and a hydrologist, oh yes, no, I was, I was very... So anyway, so I got to know Kathleen a little bit. This poem, if you can read this, is the last poem in the book. And if it, it, it's... It's it's based on a on, on a on a on a real project. I mean, if you've ever gone by old highways where there's um, road signs from 50 or 60 years ago, and you can see that you can you can see some of the words, but not necessarily all of them, and you try to piece together the story from that. This this project was based on the on on the idea of when you're dealing with materials that could be deadly for five to ten thousand years, how do you mark them so that people five to ten thousand years from now will understand what is going on? I mean what's what's the language going to be you think about how much languages have changed in the last 300 years imagine 3000 years what do you do what kind of symbology do you use um it, it, the the traditional radiation warning sign that i grew up with when that was t- um, market tested on on a variety of cultures some go oh that looks like an angel uh, no. So this is so so changing the symbology. How do you how do you use symbol language instead of instead of words? So this is this um, the imagination of this is a group of people coming upon some symbols and some signs in stone or metal or whatever they could figure that would last that long, trying to figure out what the problem is. And what are they trying to tell us? Do we, um, is this, are things good? Is that a plume? Is that a cloud? I mean, is that, is that danger? Is that, and the, the word that keeps coming back is death. Uh, you know, when it's like, what are they, what, what's, what's going on? So we sang death like 87 times in the, right. in the director. It's like, I was a little worried, but that we were going to get in trouble. We did not. They were great. It was like, do what you want to do, do what you think, do what your thing is. Um, so, it, 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 uh, in my imagination, this is um, three three choirs. Uh, the center is the group of people coming upon this this incomplete symbology, trying to figure out what 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 to do. Um, th- this is a real project that I actually know people who have worked on it, both at Hanford and at, and for the Yucca Mountain thing. How do we mar- how do we mark it? Um, and then I have like Greek chorus of of two Greek choruses, one on either side, being being the people from the past trying to trying to say it means this, it means uh-huh. death. And they're going, is it this? Is that mean love? Does that mean happiness? Death. They keep saying, no, it means death. <laughs> and it's like, no, I think my, it might be, let's plant our corn here. No, it means death. So anyway, that's kind of the, the, the concept. And you can't, as like, as, as like I said, you can't really get that from a YouTube video or a live or, or a plain recording. When you're in a room and you can get one choir on one side, one choir on the other side, and then these people, this, this septet, in the, septet in the middle, it's, it's a different experience. But... All right. Well, we're going to unfortunately just hear a multi-track 
uh, yep. performance of this by Matthew Curtis. Uh, but a very accurate one. Very <laughs> accurate one. And if you ever do get a chance to hear this live, I recommend hearing it inside a nuclear reactor. So here is If You Can Read This.
All right, well, Reg, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? So one of the weird things about the pandemic is that projects come and project a lot of projects go. And I don't have any projects right now. Oh. I mean, and that's, that's a thing that, that we don't like to admit. It's like, what do you have? What, what's going on? Um, nothing. I, my, 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 I completed a commission in the, in the spring. Um, that performance has come and gone. Oh, and there was another one, you know, did not too long before that. And those projects are all in place and I'm loving them and they're great. And there are no more right now. So, so I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. And that, that, that represents both, um, uh, risk and opportunity. I mean, you know, I, I might, you know, so I'm looking, I'm looking for, for, for reasons to, to write things. Um, and I have some things that I want to write. Maybe I'll write them just for me. Um, that's not been my habit. Maybe it's time. I'm not too old for new habits. Maybe it's time to write things just because I want to write them. I don't know. All right. Well, listeners, if you're looking for someone to commission, Reg is open and available. I am. <laughs> All right. Well, if my listeners do want to learn more about you, figure out how to commission you, what's your website? Where are you located online? It's my name. So you have to learn how to figure out how to spell my name, <laughs> reginaldwinterzare.com. And, you know, it's if you, you misspell it a little bit, Google knows me. One of the great things about having an unusual name is that is that you start typing much of it and they go, oh, Google, oh yeah, that guy. We, yeah, we know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've run into this before. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, listeners out there, if you are enjoying today's episode, and I'm sure you are, consider supporting the show for as little as $1 a month. Visit anchor.fm slash movable dough slash support and become a supporting member of the show today. Well, Reginald Untazer, it has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. My guest today was composer Reginald Untazer. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.